they say that January is out with the old and in with the new. And you know what? Here at the Film File, it's never old because this is the film show for film geeks by film geeks. The Film File. I mean, we're old, but the show yeah, isn't. But we're still yeah. new. Hello and welcome to the Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And I'm really cold. <laughs> I'm just going to get that out before we start. I'm freezing. It's uh, the, When we record this a couple of days before uh, broadcast, I'm really cold. I've, I've heard there's going to be snow due, but I've been hearing that in the press for the last few weeks. Yeah, it's been speculated. Uh, I believe there was a slight flutter down south. Yeah, they had ago. it in, in Brighton, of all places, where they yeah. never normally get, get snow. But, yeah, it's, it's it's proper frosty. I mean, I've been, the past two mornings, I've been on earlies at work, so I've been stood at the bus stop at, like, quarter to seven. And, boy, I'm wrapped up with as much layers as possible. And yeah, I'm, I'm still up. shivering. Absolutely. And I'm watching the cars going past me with layers of frost across the top of them that they've, like, they've half scraped off just so they can see through the windscreen. Oh, oh you'd think it was winter. Oh, hang you on. think <laughs> I'm not a cold person. I like I, I know you're not big on 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 the heat, but I do like the heat. <laughs> I don't I don't mind cold because I can I can put a blanket over me and warm myself up. <laughs> got such an image as long as he's got his blanket over him, he's fine. In summer, when it's hot, you can strip off completely and you're still hot and uncomfortable. And I don't like that. I like to be able to moderate my temperature using things around me. Summer doesn't work for me because it doesn't let me moderate. And I, I don't deal with the heat. I don't deal well with the heat. I'm not a good heat person. Is that is that even English? I don't even know if that was English. I, I uh, go with that. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, there, there might be a lot of babbling this episode because Andy's, like I just said, I've, I've been on a couple of earlies and I'm absolutely shattered. <laughs> this is not like me at all. Um, I, I'm a night person. I'd come alive in the night, but now my body's adjusted to like, yeah, you need to come alive at 4 a.m. every morning. So uh, you should be going to think about going to bed round about now. But, you know, I'm here. I'm still going to do the show because I'm not going to let everyone down. Well, it's going to be a fun show. We're going to have a fun time. Well, you know what? <laughs> That's Let's through. get straight into the show just for you, Andy, so we're not, we're not messing around. And let's start with last week's significant social challenge where we asked, what bit of geekdom are you most looking forward to in 2024? And Andy, how did we do with our responses? Loads of responses with regards films over this year. Okay. Uh, the first half I did not note to anything geek. Not everyone's completely geeky like the rest of us. I'll throw in a, at least one video game uh, when it comes to my list. But we'll start with over on Facebook. Uh, Mumsy Patricia Meakin did a, quite, a, quite a list. And I hope she gets a chance to see all of these. One Life which is out at the moment. Night Swim, if she can pluck up the courage. Yeah, Poor Things. She really, wants to see, she really wanted to see Aquaman, but probably missed it. The Boys on the Boat looks good too. She doubts if she'll see any of them. And she still needs to see Wonka as well. Good list for just this month to work through. Uh, Lindsay Story, looking forward to so many this year. Maxine, yeah, I'm there with you on that one. Can't wait for Maxine. The New Planet of the Apes, Paddington yeah. in Peru, Beetlejuice 2. Kind of excited for the new Joker film, but worried that there may be disappointment. Um, would have loved to have seen Mia Goth as Harley Quinn. Yep, I'd love to see Mark, Mia Goth as pretty much anything at this point in time. Uh, Owen Cooper said Dune 2 has to be up there since we've had to wait so long for it now. And Deadpool 3 is also up there. And so glad that Marvel's taking a breather since their content is becoming more and more stale. 
and also looking forward to the fall guy yeah yeah looking forward to the fall guy it's it's high on my list i've got the nostalgic memories of sitting and watching the tv series as a kid so i was hyped for it even before ryan gosling was attached but that trailer sold it completely to me it just looks like fun it looks utter fun over on mastodon blender dumbass said dune challenges and avatar 3 Okay. Has Avatar 3 slipped to next year, I think, hasn't it? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I must be perfectly honest. I lose track of where the Avatars are coming out because one minute they say that it's coming out this, this and this. And then it's like, eh, but I've not made them yet. So give it another year or so. But if it is out this year, I'm with you on that. But I do think it's slipped over to 2025. Mev's Mats. Stuffy definitely wants to see at some point. Night Swim. Mean Girls. Beekeeper. Lisa Frankenstein. Bob Marley One Love. Drive Away Dolls, Dune 2, Spaceman, Damsel, Imaginary, Love Lies Bleeding, Roadhouse, Ghostbusters Frozen Empire, and Godzilla X-Kong The New Empire. You can always rely on Mevs to draw up one <laughs> heck of a list, and that is one banging list of films to look forward to this year. Anyone who says there's no films coming out this year, Mevs has got your back there. He'll point you in the right direction. Always, always delivers on the list of films. Dirty Old Town replied to Mevs to say Night Swim was on his list too, but he sees it's hovering at a rating of two on Letterboxd, which is shockingly low. A lot of people are really hating it, so it's kind of put them off. As I always say, if you're interested in something, don't let negative reviews put Give you off. Give it a go. Same as like, you know, don't always assume that positive reviews mean that you're inherently going to like it, which will become quite apparent later in the show when it gets to the reviews. Spoiler alert. Aussie at Mastodon World. Zone of Interest, All of Us Strangers, Love Lies Bleeding, and Argyle. Also pretty interested in ISS and Lisa Frankenstein. And although I've already seen Sometimes I Think About Dying, I may catch it again when it goes for a wider release. And then suddenly realised, oh, just noticed that How to Have Sex is coming out in the US in February, which you can't wait for. There's some good selections of films being suggested there. And over via Spotify, Kate Young replied with Poor Things, Dune Part 2, Joker, Ghostbusters Frozen Empire, Inside Out 2, forgot Inside Out 2. Oh, yeah. Quite yeah. looking forward to that. Deadpool 3, loads. It's the year of sequels, which, yeah, it is, but it's it's the year of sequels that we're kind of excited for, not the year of sequels where we just go, oh, can we just get something different? That's quite a good selection, and I'm quite looking forward to uh, pretty much everything that's been recommended there. What's on your list? Well, I mean, apart from the movies, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, Highly looking forward to Deadpool 3. I'm looking forward to the announcement to who's going to be James Bond. I'm sure this mm -hmm. will come sometime this year. We're, we're, we're kind of due. TV shows, I'm looking forward to Doctor Who uh, landing. Is it March? May or March? I can't remember. always get those two months mixed up. Both begin with them. You're, you're yeah. excused. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also looking forward to Ripley. Yes. That's a very good shout. I will, I will definitely side with you on that one. I'm liking everything that I'm hearing about it. We like Andrew Scott, and I think, I think Matt yeah. Damon did a, a, a really creepy job in the film, but I think Andrew Scott can put his, his own charismatic stamp on this. A couple of comics I'm looking forward to as well. Uh, Ooh, I'm looking up? forward to the relaunch of Ultimate Spider-Man, in which uh, mm. Peter Parker's now a dad when he gets his powers, and I kind of I like that. I mean, the people have said, oh... This is not the comic we wanted. It's never going to be the comic you wanted until you start reading it. Mm. Films-wise from me, in the immediate future, there's American Fiction and Iron Claw that I'm really looking forward to. 
Um, obviously, the ones that have been mentioned, like June 2, Lisa Frankenstein, Ghostbusters, Frozen Empire, go without saying. Mickey 17 holds some interest. Civil War, I am so looking yep. forward to. Up for that. Gladiator 2 is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Back to Black is on my list. The Amy Winehouse story. And Furiosa and Imaginary Friends, if. Yeah. I mean, Imaginary Friends has Ryan Reynolds in it, so of course I'm looking forward to it. But that trailer was just charming, and I was all over it. And that's just the first half of this year. Video game-wise, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, um, the second part of this new remake of the Final Fantasy games. Can't wait. That'll be a day one purchase for me, and I don't buy games on day one. I usually wait until there's a sale, but this uh, this needs to get into my life. And the good thing about it is it comes out the day before my week off work for my, holiday, for my birthday. So uh, happy birthday, Andy. I'm going to be playing Final Fantasy. And comics-wise, just dropped the first issue on DC Infinite that I'm looking forward to sitting down and reading before I go to bed tonight. And it's the DC comic, Robin Lives, which is picking up the alternate future from when they did the death in the family and killed off Robin. And I'm quite interested to see how that plays out. i tell you what we should be getting a trailer for coming up for 2024. We should be getting a trailer real soon for Beetlejuice 2 and Nosferatu. Yes. yes. We've had various images released for Nosferatu. The trailer's got to be around the corner. And I'm well excited for that. Beetlejuice 2. We talked about Beetlejuice 2 at work today with one of the team. And we're both excited for it. But we're also keeping a little bit of trepidation. Yeah, understandable. It's it's a it's difficult territory to 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 go back on. You know, it's it's legacy sequels are hit and miss. But with a bit of luck, and it's Michael Keaton, and it's Tim Burton. Fingers crossed, it's all going to go our way. I mean, if we if they can repeat the success that well, I believed it was a success. The Ghostbusters um, legacy sequel yeah. that ticked all the boxes perfectly, and which is why so many people are excited for Frozen Empire. Because that new cast of characters with the links to the past worked. So hopefully Beetlejuice would manage to capture that Burton manic energy that he brought into Beetlejuice and not feel like it's not feel like it's 30 years too late, basically. So this week's question, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go somewhere different. And Andy and I chatted about this last week before we started recording. Movies where the hero doesn't necessarily win at the end so what films can you think of where the hero doesn't win or, or even the the villain succeeds so i'm thinking butch cassidy and sundance kid where no matter what they don't get out of that tight spot mm. any of the films that you can think of that you like where the heroes don't necessarily have a win uh, a couple spring instantly to mind let us know. Let us know your thoughts. All you have to do yep. is contact us here at the pod by... Head over to social media channels, search for Film File UK. You can find us on there. Send us a message through there. You can answer it via Spotify. The question will be in the show notes. Answer via there. Or email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. And hear your name read out. I was, got, was about to say read out in lights, but that doesn't quite work when you're doing <laughs> audio. <laughs> hear your name read out on next week's show. Fantastic. And talking of shows, what have we got for you on this week's show? It's action-packed with news, I can tell you that much. We've got a deep dive this week into... Call Me By Your Name. Now, this is one that has been on the back burner for quite some time. Um, it was recommended by Harvey Morton. Oof. Well, you know us. It's probably about 18 months ago. That's how long it takes us to get around to it. But um, I saw him today at work and told him he's going to be so pleased this week when he listens to the show. 
we have reviews of a few things that have caught over the past few days beekeeper that landed at cinemas poor things that landed at cinemas and lift that landed on netflix and we'll also have a brief discussion about echo because i've seen the whole season lee's only seen one episode so i have to be careful not to drop spoilers and we've got before any of that we've got the news and we've got the box office Quiet start to the year. Last time we spoke, Wonka had been released in the US. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom looked like it was sinking in the shallow end. But Andy, what are the boxes like for this week? So in the US, it's Mean Girls that's off to a fine start, hitting the top spot with 28.7 million. The Beekeeper opens in second place with 16.6 million. Wonka is 8.5 million to take third place. Anyone But You is in fourth place with 7.1 million and Migration 6.2 million to round off the top five. Here in the UK, Wonka takes the top spot again six weeks out and it's still bringing in all the audiences. Poor Things opens in second place with 1.8 million. Anyone But You, 1.24 million to take third place. One Life stays into fourth place, 956,000 this week. And the beekeeper opens in fifth with nine hundred and thirty-eight thousand. Quite a diverse box office, really. Uh, with yeah, you know, it, it's a typical January box office where it's not huge hitters, but it's good numbers for the kind of films that are coming out. Uh, beekeeper currently on a UK cinema release before it drops onto Sky as a Sky original. Read into that what you want, but I'll talk about it in my review later in the show. Okay, so we've got quite a lot as regards news. Last week was pretty quiet. This week, we've got some casting developments. We've got some news that nobody saw or expected to come from the Star Wars universe. Oh, yeah. Mandalorian's going to a movie rather than another season. And it's looking like it's looking because it's going to be making its way to the big screen that any chances of another series of it. I've pretty much been struck off. Yeah, uh, it was confirmed this week. John Favreau is going to direct. And look as though he's probably going to write with Dave Filoni. The Mandalorian and Grogu film. He's going to film it in 2024. So it's a couple of years away. But I guess no one saw this coming. Um, season three ended with a real sense of sort of resolution and our heroes sort of living comfortably on an existence, um, taking it easy. Favreau had mentioned in interviews that he'd been writing season four and the next series was never officially announced. So the next Adventures of the Mandalorian and Grogu won't be another season. It's going to be a cinematic release. And I'm, I'm guessing nobody saw this coming. This is going to be the... Actually, it's the, it's the only Star Wars film since 2019. I mean, we know that there's constant stories of projects for Star Wars getting greenlit and then vanishing. I mean, Taika Waititi's project apparently is now completely dead. We don't know what's happening with Ryan Johnson's discussed trilogy that he wanted to do last last word from him on that was like eh, still not planned it we do know that james mangold's one looks like it's going to be going ahead soon and that's his like early days of the rise of the jedi which i'm interested big style in because i i'd like to see something delve back into the past hey that mangold he can direct as well yes he can certainly direct and uh charmin obeyed chinoy's film which is going to pick up the tale of ray set after the skywalker saga is pretty much going ahead at some point although there has been some fake controversy generated with regards That's the now that you mean a female-led project in the star wars universe fake controversy 
you surprise me. Isn't it strange? Uh, last week, some of you may have seen it, but there was a tweet that went out with a clip from a panel discussion about women in the world of film, where Obe Chinoy had said that she likes to make men uncomfortable and enjoys making men uncomfortable. It's important to look into the eyes of a man and say, I am here. And obviously the Star Wars fan base, particularly the right wing or incel fan base, started saying, how dare this woman say that we can't watch Star Wars, that she's making a film that's not for us, blah, blah, blah. Now, first things first, whether that was in context, does it make any difference that one Star Wars film might not be aimed at you? Star Wars is for everyone. So isn't it fine for a female project to focus towards the female audience with a female lead character, which all you incels hate anyway because you call her a Mary Sue? Secondly, that clip was taken from a panel discussion in 2015 when she was talking about the documentary that she did and the TV series, Ho Yakin, which was shedding light <laughs> on acid attacks on females and the, the abuse that females suffer in some territories around the world. She was responding to that aspect of being a force for change and making men feel uncomfortable when they're confronted with the horrors that men can inflict. But, you know, this is the internet, and so obviously no one wanted to read the actual story and dig into it until about five days later when I took great pleasure in posting online. Well, looks like if you actually research things and check things out, you don't end up with egg on your face prompting a discussion with uh, someone who had egg on his face. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. And the person I was having the discussion with started saying, but what, what, has, what has Chinoy done to make her, make her worthy of making a Star Wars film? I was like, why does she have to justify it? She's a filmmaker. She's made films. She's made TV shows. She's also directed a few episodes of Ms. Marvel, which was fantastic. Yeah. You know, why is it that whenever a woman is put in charge of a project, they have to justify the reasoning for them being in there? When no one turned around and says, why is Ryan Johnson being given a Star Wars film when he's only ever done low-budget films? Why is J.J. Abrams making a Star Wars film? No one ever questions male directors when they get put in charge of something. Because it's just like, oh, well, he's a bloke. He can do it. But women always have to justify it. Yeah. Grow up, people. Grow up. Star Wars fandom is, well, it's as toxic as every fandom at the moment. It's it's just terrible that people are already wanting to hate on this project. And they'll probably start hating on Mandalorian because they'll still see the Kathleen Kennedy's names attached to it as producer and go, she's got to ruin it. Kick her out. Toxic fandoms just wind me up because let people make the film and then judge the film on its merits. That's right. Don't um, prejudge it. Tenuous link time, though, from Star Wars. I'm talking about uh, the series and or Toby Haynes, who was one of the chief directors on that show. Well, again, who saw this coming has announced that he's going to be directing uh, a new Star Trek film and it's moving oh. forward. So reports are that Toby Haynes, who did, I think, superb work. I, I loved Andor. I thought it was uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic series. But what we do know, this is under wraps. But we have learned that Seth Graham Smith is writing a script that will be set decades before Abraham's 2009 uh, Star Trek reboot, uh, which had Chris Pine in the lead as Captain Kirk. From the sounds of it, it'll, it'll introduce us to a new crew decades before the events of those, I'm guessing, like Discovery and Strange New World. Yeah. Uh, there's still hope if you're thinking, well, what about the current crew, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto and the gang are, are still hoping and pushing forward for a fourth film that is hopefully still in development. I'm excited for anything Trek. Uh, I mean, you know, we've got uh, Michelle Yeoh's Section 31 film 
expected to begin production at the end of this month as well. I mean, that'll be going straight to streaming, but this will be a big screen outing for a new Trek. And I'm, I'm interested in that. It particularly seems though they're going for a different point in the history of it. So it's got to be somewhere after Enterprise, but it's suggested that it's going to be before Discovery. So it'll yeah. be somewhere in that interim period. And Toby Haynes, I mean, I, I wasn't a big fan of Andor. I've not finished it yet because I found it hard to get into. I will go back to it eventually. You should, really. He also gave us one of my favourite episodes of Black Mirror, USS Callister. Oh, right, yeah, I didn't know that. Which was very Trekish. Yeah, very, very much. So if anyone says, what, you know, well, it seems like you do it with uh, all the female directors, what's he got? Which means that he can make a Star Trek film, USS Callister. <laughs> there you go. We'll do this for every announcement for now yes, on. We'll every time there's back. a male director. <laughs> we'll point out, we'll ask the question, what have they, what have they got to make them worthy of doing this? I'm, I'm going to go for the Trinity now on Ooh, films that you Trinity. didn't expect. Danny Boyle and Alex Garland. Ah, I knew you were going for this Officially one. <laughs> developing a, a film that, that wasn't on my bingo card 28 years later. Yes, and it, it's, it is going to be close to 28 years later by the time it's it comes out as well. Twenty Because it's, tw it's 24 years since 28 Days Later came out. Yeah. So by the time this has gone through production, we'll be getting close to that 28 years. Yes, uh, Danny Boyle and Alex Garland are going to re-team to do a revival of the series. It won't just be another sequel, such as 28 Weeks Later, which they only produced. It will be a proper update. It's going to be lined up as the start of a potential whole new trilogy at the same time. Hopefully they don't make it feel like it's going to be part of a trilogy. Hopefully it stands as a film on its own with branches that they can then grow out if it's a success. But this is the kind of sequel that we really want. We want Garland and Boyle reteamed, And apparently they're planning to write all three of the trilogy parts and both of them will then produce it as well. Andrew McDonald and Peter Rice will also produce alongside them. And the budget for each film is expected to be around about $75 million. Hey, which in real money, not a lot these days. And you can get good. And anyone who says, oh, you're not going to be able to, able to get the effects looking good with $75 million. Creator would like to have a word with you there. Because that <laughs> film cost $80 million and looked better. Uh, oh, Godzilla minus one, approximately $16 million yep. to make. And looked better than, well, any of the big blockbusters last year. I'm definitely excited for 28 years later. This is train spotting 20 years later all over again for me because it's a chance to see what Danny Boyle can do when he updates one of his own ideas for a new audience. Andy, yep. can, can I make you happy? I'm going to say uh, a name that always know will bring a smile to your face. Is it going to be Wes Anderson? It is. Yeah. Is it going to be Wes Anderson re-teaming with Bill Murray, who was notably absent in Asteroids? Notice how Bill Murray wasn't in a Wes Anderson film. And that film didn't make my top 10 list of the year. I, I don't think See? the two are, the, are <laughs> connected. Um, but yeah, um, so 2023 was a busy year for Wes Anderson. He, he put out Asteroid City in the cinemas, and he also produced and directed four Roald Dahl adaptations for Netflix. But news has arrived that Bill Murray, Michael Serra, and Benicio Del Toro will be part of the cast of his next film. Yes, which is... Uh... Currently got the working title of the Phoenician Scheme. Anderson had already revealed back in September that he and Roman Coppola had already just had just finished writing the script and then the writer's strike kicked off. And at the time he said, so when the time is right, we've got a movie to make. We don't know a lot about it. I've heard that it's going to be international spy kind of caper. <laughs> Fantastic. But, for, but done through the lens of Wes Anderson, that could go anywhere. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm there for that. You know I'm always there for a Wes Anderson, even on his 
worst days, Wes Anderson delivers something that makes me happy. And it's been a, a, a week of surprises generally. And, and another surprise is Top Gun 3 in development at Paramount. So we know yeah. that Top Gun Maverick saved cinema. So I think Tom Cruise is going to save cinema again. It's interesting this because you would have expected because it was last year. Well, not last year. Now It was two years ago almost that Top Gun Maverick came out. And you would have expected it to have come straight off the back of that with like, we're making a third one. But they've waited like 18 months before making the decision. It might be because Cruise is pretty much tied up with about 400 different projects at the time. But well, let's not forget he's, he's signed a massive deal this week with Warners. Paramount haven't given up on Tom Cruise, even though he's just signed a deal with Warners. And uh, I've greenlit the third Top Gun movie, which has now gone into early development. Uh, yep. Top Gun Maverick co-writer Evan Kruger is currently working on a draft of the script and it will mark a reunion of Cruise with Miles Teller and Glenn Powell, along with producers Jerry Bruckheimer and David Ellison. Joseph Kaczynski will reportedly return in at least a producing capacity and potentially a directing one. I'd love if he directs again because I think what made Top Gun Maverick work so well was his skillful direction. Yeah. It was in tribute to what Tony Scott did, but it also yeah. had its own unique look to it as well. And with regards to Cruise's Warner Brothers deal, basically Tom Cruise has now announced a non-exclusive deal between the action superstar and um, Warner Brothers themselves, which will see him develop, produce and lead original and franchise theatrical films for Warners, which they kind of need someone who will bring bums to seats at this point in time according to the trade the deal between Cruise and warner brothers discovery has been loosely in the works for almost a year and it was hastened by several factors as the trade suggests Cruise was unhappy with the way paramount has dealt with him on a number of issues and this will probably have to do with some of the some of the stuff that happened around the last mission impossible film but with regards to it it does hold hope that we might finally get to see that sequel to edge of tomorrow as well which is a warner's property yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it's, it, it, hey, look, it's pure speculation, but it's it kind of slightly closer speculation. We know that Cruz wants to do it. We know that Emily Blunt wants to do it. Yeah. This could be, this could be the um, starting point for it, but we'll let you know Fingers when crossed. we know. But yeah, it's, it's been a lot of like really like exciting, like, wow, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, I didn't expect that. To follow the good news up. I've got a great one. This really it. brought a smile to my face. And I know that one of our regular listeners, Lindsay, is going to be very happy with this news. Filmmaker David Gordon Green has exited The Exorcist <laughs> Deceiver. When we were talking about Holy Trinities, uh, it, it sprang to mind that this may be one of the stories today. We know that last year's Exorcist Believer was a critical flop. It might have broken even and made some profit at the box office because audiences will flock to a low-budget horror regardless. But it didn't get very good reviews and it got ripped to shreds by me on this show. Well, every show, to be honest. When I review, when we reviewed it, I said that the problem with this film is the same problem with the Halloween films. David Gordon Green can't do horror. He was a comedy director and he was great when he was doing comedies. But his attempts at horror have been shocking. And now he's stepped away. Green is getting out after directing the first one, Universal and Blumhouse are now reportedly searching for a new director. This means that Exorcist Deceiver has been pulled from its original planned April the 18th, 2025 release and will be kept on the back burner until they can fill that slot. But yes, we might actually get some hope for the next Exorcist film. I'm still going to remain sceptical because I was so disappointed. I, I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen now. I think if they draw a line under it because of the 
the bad press, bad reputation. Uh, the last movie I picked up, well, I can see it being so nailed into a coffin and buried into uh, <laughs> holy ground. I can't remember if we mentioned this way back in 2019, and it's probably unlikely that we, we wouldn't have let it pass. Uh, a live-action movie based on one of the great comics, and that's Sam Key's The Max, is now reportedly moving forward at Paramount with Channing Tatum attached to star. So it was announced back in 2019, and there's not been any updates since. However, according to Daniel Richmond, who's the producer, the Max is now moving forward at Paramount. Channing Tatum still attached to play the lead role. So if you never read Sam Keith's The Max, it was a bizarre comic, but it was also a fantastic 13-episode animated series that came from MTV, which was dark, bizarre, but wildly and critically acclaimed. Uh, we did mention it when it was first rumoured, but it's nice to know that it's you know something that we've discussed many years ago in the early days of the show. It might finally make its way to production. Decent casting. I'm there for it. Uh, there's been a lot of casting news on The Last of Us as well. Yes. Uh, the most notable ones that... Caitlin Dever, I've not seen this properly confirmed, but everyone takes it as it's gospel now. The Caitlin Dever, who was in Booksmart, will be portraying Abby in season two and three of The Last of Us. It's caused a bit of debate online as to she doesn't look perfect. She needs to have muscles, almost like, you know, people can't go to the gym and work out. Yeah, especially uh, <laughs> when you're an actor getting ready for a part. Yeah, you'd think, you'd think they might. But generally, it's been taken quite well by the online community who are looking forward to seeing that story play out. And so, I'm, personally, I'm looking forward to watching people who've never played the game react to certain moments in um, the second season because, oh, they're in for a shock. It's Like I say, it's, I've not seen a confirmation source yet, so it is still speculation, but it is speculation from trustworthy insiders. But we do know that Isabella Marced has scored the key role of Dina in the new season and the new season starts production next month in Vancouver so any other casting rumours will be able to get confirmed once they start shooting in Vancouver well I'm going to update that for you as yep. well because I don't know if you watched Beef on uh, Netflix but young Mazzino apparently has been cast to play the role of Jesse who was in the second game as well three new names into the season we cannot wait to see season two of The Last of Us. That first season was just such a good adaptation of the game, whilst also not feeling beholden to the game at the same time. We talked earlier about locking a deal down with Warner Brothers. It seems that Paul Thomas Anderson has done exactly that. His biggest film to date, the director is recruiting high-profile cast of Leonardo DiCaprio, Regina Hall and Sean Penn. And it's been some time since Paul Thomas Anderson was seen uh, with his much more low budget and um, a more close to heart licorice pizza anyway according to deadline pretty much everything about the new film is shrouded in mystery beyond the fact that it's set in contemporary times will boast a large ensemble cast uh, around the main trio and he's apparently a budget about a hundred million which is a lot for a paul thomas anderson movie and it's scheduled to kick off shooting later this month did you know that uh, dicaprio was in line for boogie nights but got cast in titanic instead yeah i, th I think we i think that was raised as a piece of trivia when we did our deep dive many moons ago was. into boogie nights sticking with warner brothers and maggie gillenhall's latest directing effort the bride looks like it's gearing up quite well with a lineup cast of christian bale annette benning penelope cruz 
Jesse Buckley and Peter Skarsgård all set to star in it. Christian Bale has been circling this project for quite some time, and it's a remake of James Whale's iconic Bride of Frank Frankenstein. For those who've never seen the original 1935 film, it was a direct sequel to Frankenstein and is widely considered by many to be the better of the two films. In the new film, a lonely Dr. Frankenstein travels to 1930 Chicago to seek the aid of Dr. Euphronius in creating a companion for himself. The two reinvigorate a murdered young woman and the bride is born. Well, well, hold my beer because there's also the Guillermo del Toro Frankenstein uh, and we named the cast for that one. Anyway, it seems that Andrew Garfield is out and Saltburn's Jacob Elorodi is in. It's, it's just Frankenstein everywhere. Good news for fans of Daredevil. Yes, it looks like it, doesn't it? Yes, uh, Eldon Henson and Deborah Ann Vol are reportedly set to return as Foggy Nelson and Karen Page in Daredevil Born Again. Now, only last year, when it was going into production, it was confirmed that they weren't coming back. But we know that the production was stopped due to the strikes, and they reviewed the footage that they had and went, this doesn't work, we need to rebuild it from the ground up. And it seems like from the ground up also involves bringing back characters oh, that good. need more story. That Their stories haven't been completely told. So, I mean, you kind of need Foggy and Karen in they're his the life. Of, of Matt Murdock's yeah. life. Yeah, they're the soul. They're the bits that ground him into, like, you know, not just being a vigilante and just, like, running across rooftops and beating bad guys. They're the ones that bring him back down to earth and get into the humanity of him. The pair will be reprising the roles that they played across the three seasons of Daredevil that were on Netflix and are now available on Disney Plus and are now officially considered canon within the MCU. I, I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out once they've rejigged this script and start production again. And it's also rumoured, talking about Daredevil, that John Bethnal is returning as the Punisher. Yes, uh, there'll always be space for Punisher. And he was a great bit of casting. Just didn't get enough time to really showcase stuff because by the time the Punisher series came out, they were kind of pulling the plug on all the Netflix, Netflix MCU properties because Marvel were basically going to be reclaiming their own properties back fast 11 the next fast and furious film is apparently going to be snipping its budget back and going back to basics so it's no longer about family then oh of course it would be about family but oh, it won't okay. be about 340 million dollars being spent on a film that doesn't make the money back this comes from uh, the insider which the source for them indicates that the plan is for fast 11 to have a budget of around 200 million or less uh, and the plan is to involve less globe hopping and more centred around a single major heist or race. Uh, they do add that Vin Diesel will be back in what will likely be his character's last film. Are they going to kill him off? Probably not. But will it? Will the rest of his family be there? We don't know. Because anyone who's a fan of the Fast and Furious franchise and watched the 10th one, or people who aren't a fan, like myself, and watched the 10th one, will know <laughs> that we were left with a, with a huge cliffhanger as to who's alive and who's dead. You know my claim to fame, don't you? You've seen one Fast and Furious film? That's right. And yep. seen, you know which one that is? Tokyo Drift. Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, Hobbs and Shaw, and I've seen a half of Tokyo Drift. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know how you've managed it. I mean, I, I still <laughs> recommend easily. the first one. I can't be asked. <laughs> the first one's still a good film. Just don't bother with the rest. I, I think it needs it in that franchise to rein it back in and become more street level because what made that first film so good was that it, it was point break with cars and it worked because it wasn't over the top it's as the franchise has got more and more ridiculous it's just become 
absolutely preposterous. Not just ridiculous, but preposterous. People die and come back to life three films later. The fact that they've looks like they've killed off so many characters at the end of the last film, none of us believe it. Because all of us just expect them to just stand, like turn around halfway through the next film and go, I'm still here, because it's become so preposterous. The 11th film is still targeting April the 4th, 2025 release. We'll see if it hits that. But if they're restructuring it from scratch and cutting the budget back, I think it might see a bit of a delay. Um, I, I was never a fan of this this next piece of news, but I am happy that it's potentially entering into the world. So I, mm-hmm. as, as we've said before, my, my geekdom has never really gone towards fantasy. But I am well aware of this series, which is a, a, came out in 1978 and developed by husband and wife duo Wendy and Richard Pinney, collectively known as Warp. And that is the comic book series from Dark Horse called ElfQuest. It's one of those iconic (laughs) series. Now, it's not my kind of thing, but I, I have read it and it is very, very well done. And it's now apparently looking as though it's going to happen at Fox as a hour long animated series. I'd be up for that. Got a couple of quick bits bits of news. Update on the Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery merger that we spoke about last week. Oh, Reports yeah. are now coming out that suggest that Paramount are instead going to be going up for auction to the highest bidder, suggesting that the proposed buyout by Warner Brothers Discovery maybe wasn't as high as they were currently hoping for. More news on that when it actually happens, but it, it is pretty much a search that Paramount is up for sale. They've been floundering with their Paramount Plus service. They've been floundering in quite a lot of areas. And there's current holders just want to offload them to someone who can use the brand. And Kingdom of the Planets of the Apes is moving two weeks earlier. It's going to be out early part of May as opposed to late May, which kind of makes sense because it was originally planned to come out at the same weekend as Furiosa, Garfield and If, which would have been too busy a week. When we discussed like how busy that week was going, I initially said one of those is going to move and I reckon it's Planet of the Apes. And I was right. Planet of the Apes is coming out two weeks earlier. It's almost like I can predict these things. We mentioned this last week. Gerald Butler is reprising his role for the live action How to Train Your Dragon. But other news in casting is Nick Frost has joined the cast to play Gobber the Belch uh, as part of the live action How to Train Your Dragon. And Kristen Stewart in an interview this week said that she hated making Charlie's Angels. That's cool because I hated watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Few trailers that I saw this week. There's the trailer out there for the first Omen. Don't know whether you've seen it. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Mm. I've got no idea what that was about. I'm intrigued. All the backward scenes and the voices was kind of a weird way to do a trailer, but I don't, I've got no idea from it. The new trailer for the Mr. and Mrs. Smith series, I am so in. Yep, looks good. Oh, we've, got, we've only got a couple of weeks left to go before that drops, and I can't wait to immerse myself in that. And Back to Black, the Amy Winehouse biopic. Yes. I was wondering if you are going to mention that. Man. Yep. I mean, I, I was not completely sold on this being made until I've seen this trailer. And Marcia Abella, who's singing and acting as Amy Winehouse, she's got the voice, she's got the look, she's got the manner, mannerisms. It looks perfect. I got emotional watching the trailer. You ever seen the documentary? Yes. Amy, brilliant, brilliant yeah. documentary. Um, if it's as emotional as that, then uh, count me in. I think we're potentially looking at next next year's Oscar success with this one, if it pays off as well as that trailer suggests it's going to. And final bit of news this week, we had the first major award ceremony this week, which was the Golden Globes, which 
overall saw pretty much what you'd expect to see with the winners. Oppenheimer took home five wins. Which makes it look good for the Oscars, doesn't it, really? Let's be honest. It does. Um, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, Holdovers and Poor Things all took two wins each. With regards to the wins from Oppenheimer, it got Best Drama. Killian Murphy as Best Actor. Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr., who everyone's been saying that, like, oh, it's his best work ever. But it's interesting to see him this week saying that he considers that his work as Tony Stark in the Iron Man films yeah. is just as good. Everyone's dismissive about comic book movies with the acting, but what he brought to that role was fantastic. Nolan got Best Director. The score by Ludwig Göransson got the Best Original Score. Best Actress, Lily Gladstone. Well-deserved. Killers of the Flower Moon. It was her film. Forget DiCaprio. It was her film. She was the reason that film was so good. Musical or comedy was where Poor Things won one of its main awards. Uh, The Boy and the Heron won Best Animated Film, and it was up against some stiff competition that included Elemental, Spider-Man Across the Universe, uh, Super Mario Brothers, to name just some. Best non-English language was Anatomy of a Fall, which I have still yet to see and looking forward to. Even more so now to see it. Um, I, I don't think there was any really massive, great surprises. I don't know about you. No, there was nothing that nothing that people weren't already expecting. Even over on TV, of course, Succession got four wins. And of course, The Bear got three wins. It got the best music or comedy, but it also got the best actor and actress for Jeremy Allen White and Ayo Edeberry and well-deserved. But come on, we were expecting it to win because it's so so good. Well, you know how much I love the bear. Uh, best performance by a male actor in a limited series, anthology series, or motion picture made for TV was Stephen Yoon for Beef, which I haven't watched. My other half has, and I'm, uh, I must get into it. And joining him as best actress was Ali Wong from Beef as well. So the kind of ex- successes that people were expecting. The Globes is always that it's the first one out the gate, basically, that makes people go, right, this is what we need to start placing the money on. I agree. I just thought, didn't you think it was just a bit underwhelming as a um, as a production? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of criticisms about the host of it was uh, not very good. I just think the, the Globes has lost the energy in the same way that the Oscars did up until last year when it suddenly recouped what it was all about. I'm hoping the Oscars brings the energy back again this year that it brought last year. Uh, we'll know what the Oscar shortlist is within the coming weeks because they get announced next week. Yep. Uh, at which point I can start to plan my viewing schedule to fill all the <laughs> gaps in my knowledge. And that, folks, that's the news. It's 2024. It's a new year and we need your help to become the number one film podcast in Sheffield. No, no, the world. Yeah, we'll go for the world. Uh, If you've not already subscribed to The Film File, please do so by heading over to your favourite podcast platform, hitting that subscription button, and please, please, please leave a like. And guys, if you really want to help The Film File out, please help promote the show. Tell all your geek buddies about us and how to find us. And you can get in touch with us right here at Film File HQ by simply... Heading over to social media platforms, search for Filmfile UK. You can get in touch with us through there. You can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or you can wrap a note onto a brick and throw it through my window. I'll still pay attention. Uh, just you get can't in touch miss with that, us can any... you? <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> just get in touch with us with any thoughts on films, any films that you want us to deep dive at some point, any films that you disagree with our opinions on, feel free. We're always open to listen to other sides of the story. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. 
a coming-of-age romantic drama directed by Luca Guadagino from a screenplay by James Ivory based on the novel by Andre Ackerman. This week, we're going to be talking about Call Me By Your Name. I can show you around. That'd be great. Thank you. I like your love. Oh, to see without my eyes. Is there anything you don't know? First time that you if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Call me by your name. Set in 1980s Italy, a romance blossoms between Elio, a 17-year-old student, and an older man, Oliver, his father's temporary assistant. And although their relationship is temporary itself, Elio realizes his sexual orientation and comes to terms with his feelings. We've had this film requested a couple of times for us to talk about. The film brought to stardom Timothy Chalamet as Elio and the now much disgraced Army Hammer as the role of Oliver. And it's a film that I, I, I like, but I don't have I don't have a passion for. This was a film that was nominated for four Oscars in the 90th Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, for the then 22-year-old Chalamet, who was the third youngest nominee in the category, and it won for Best Adapted Screenplay. It's a film that is earnest and very well done, but I cannot make an emotional attachment to it. It's as simple as that. I think it's, I think it's beautifully acted. I think it's beautifully shot. And even though it, it's much loved, it, it ju I just... It's one of those things that I just cannot connect with. And that's not to say that it's it's a bad film in any way. It's just, I think that's just a personal uh, a personal connection to it. As we've mentioned a few times over the years, this is one of the films that I've never seen up until this week when I've watched it in preparation for the show. And I'm happy to report that I absolutely loved it. I connected with it in a way that I'll get to as I'm talking. It's the final instalment in what Guadagino called his Desire Trilogy, and he described the approach to the story as light-hearted and simple in comparison with the highly stylized earlier films that he made. And he didn't see it as a gay movie, but a movie about the beauty no. of a newborn idea of desire, unbiased and uncynical. And what that's one thing that, I mean, even though it's a gay relationship that's being developed as like the coming-of-age saga is showing someone coming to terms with their own sexuality, it feels beautifully natural and it feels like just any relationship. What I was really impressed with is normally when you say coming of age tale, you expect some death or some hardship or coming yeah. from a poor upbringing. But there's none of that. There's no challenges in this film. This is just a simple coming to terms with your own sexuality and desires kind of story. There's no antagonists working against them to try to bring them down, except for Elio's own psyche. And it's yeah. also like an analysis, not only of like trying to hide your sexuality, but also trying to hide your religion, because the family in it are a Jewish upbringing. But the mother, as always says, hide who you are. And it's Elio coming to terms with not only who he is sexually, but who he is spiritually at the same time and how those two things can work. They are their own antagonists that they have to overcome. There's no other families saying, oh, this thing is an abomination. It's their own thoughts but i said that this connected with me and you know where it connected with me the okay. father okay yeah I, I can see that i, I can certainly see that because 
one thing that stood out and impressed me with this is throughout the film, you don't know whether Elio's parents know how deep the relationship between Elio and Oliver actually is, whether they just see it as a budding friendship and they're both just lads hanging out, or whether they knew that there was sexual desire going on there. Until the final act, when he sits down with his father and his father opens up and like, you know, shows that he approves of it and he's glad for him that he's found someone and, you know, glad that he's grown his person and suggests that he almost had that relationship himself, but he never took it when he was young. And that's the bit that I can re reflect with because I had a friend that as the same sex as me that made me realize that I'm bisexual uh, when I was young, but I never took that step. And it's always one of those things that is like, if my child opened up to me that they were gay, I would be happy for them. And that's happened because my daughter opened up to me and I've embraced it. I see myself in that father. I see, I see that as how I am as a parent, that I understand my own sexuality and I'm happy that they're finding their own way in life and I will support them in whatever they do. A beautiful film. It really touched me right on a personal level, as you can tell. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with the fact that it, it is it's, it's unpretentious. It's mm. an intelligent film. It's beautifully directed. The performances, and I think Chalamet is, is brilliant in it. Uh, I think it's a, a brave film, and especially when you look at it next to films like Moonlight and, and Carol as mm. well, which has, has helped move gay cinema on into into an art form. I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't know why I don't connect with it. And, and sometimes some films don't. It doesn't mean that I dislike it. And I certainly, certainly don't dislike it i think it's i think it's a it's a, a wonderfully made film and i can see that it has it real heart i think it transcends what gay cinema is into something as you said that's honest and open and there's not a major death scene in it and there's no major huge dramatic revelations i just i think it's i think it's 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 simply a very very beautifully produced film I, I, I can't tell you. Some films that, that you just don't connect with. And uh, and I think it's, I, I don't know why that is. It's certainly not that it's, it's queer cinema. That that doesn't, as I said, I think Moonlight and Carol are, are, are beautifully brilliant films. For some reason, this doesn't land. However, saying that, a couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to interview Andre Ackerman, who was the author of the 2007 novel, at a literary festival. And, and it was, I was called in at the last minute. He was coming to do a talk. The interviewer had dropped out and I only knew the story by the film, not by the book. Uh, and I met Mr. Ackerman, who's not gay himself. And he, he just wrote a love story and just happened to decide at some point that it was going to be between uh, an older man and a younger boy. And he and I got on like a house on fire. It was one of the most joyous experiences I've ever had interviewing Andre Ackerman. And we absolutely clicked and I had a fantastic time. Uh, so much so that I will at some point go back and read the book. But yeah, it's just, it's one of those, those uh, odd occurrences. And, and sometimes you can put your finger right on why a film doesn't connect and sometimes why it does connect. And, and I don't know why this doesn't but i do recognize that it is a beautifully made piece of cinema and yeah and everything it does it does incredibly well and it has some standout performances especially timothy chalamet who was at that point in his in his life 
22. He'd had various support roles yeah. up until then. This is the one that really shows that he can take a central lead with effortless awkwardness and charm yeah. and make you care for a character that is unsure of themselves and you believe it. It, it felt natural. The cinematography from Sayon Boom yeah, it, from. is beautiful. Every shot outside the house, even the shots inside the house, are like postcards. They are. They make you want to visit these places because it's shot so perfectly. They just really capture that magic of a relationship blossoming in this small environment. It's a beautiful told tale of first love that is more than the sum of its parts for me. I know that there was criticisms levied at it at the time of its release because of the perceived age gap in the age, age difference. Yeah, it wasn't helped by the fact that Army Hammer was significantly older than what the character that he's supposed to be playing. The character is supposed to be twenty-four years old. It's supposed to be a seven years age gap. But Army Hammer is in his early th- was in his early thirties, and so it was kind of looked as like, well, he looks like he's almost twenty years older than the young lad. I don't see that. I I, I don't see. I, I you know I. I think that's a, a small critique. The critics that had the problems with the idea of a 24-year-old dating a 17-year-old would hate my life because uh, I was a 24-year-old dating the woman who is now my wife and has been for the past 20-odd years. So uh, these relationships can happen. They can work. You can connect across age divides, and it doesn't have to be fit. It doesn't have to come across as though you're dominating and creepy. Because trust me, I don't wear the trousers in this household. <laughs> I, I'm not that. That's true. Guadagnino has de- deliberated over the idea of a sequel since the film's premiere at Sundance. When he said he realised the characters go- could go beyond the boundaries of the film, he'd hoped to make a sequel initially in 2020, telling the story of Oliver and Elio as they age. A bit like Linklater's before trilogy. Yeah, I, I, I exactly what I was going to say. There was a novel called Find Me. Guadagnino had expressed interest in the politics of the 1990s, saying it's a time for the, of the fall of communism, the start of a new world order, and that would be an interesting area to explore. However, Ivory appeared to be dismissive, saying about the idea of sequels, that's fine, good, but I don't know where they're going to get a 40-year-old Chalamet. Apparently, this, the idea is still out there, but at the moment, it hasn't moved any further than just being an idea. One of the big problems that they've now got is because of the allegations uh, made around Army Hammer and his uh, fetishism for cannibalism and emotional abuse. It's kind of put a stopper on any of the project going forwards. Even if Sham- Chalamet could make himself look older, it's unlikely that they'll get Hammer back. And I think you probably need both of them back in order to capture that magic again. It's a shame because it would have been great to see, like we've said, like a link later's before trilogy, go back to these characters every 10, 15 years and see where they are in their lives. Maybe at some point, but for the time being, it's going to be on the back burner. If you want to watch Call Me By Your Name, Andy, where can we find it? I caught it on Netflix, but I believe it's also on Sky Movies as well. Just do a search for it. It's available there to, you know, if you've never seen it, Give it a watch. It's a beautiful film. And whether you connect with it in the way that I have and love it, I can't wait to rewatch it. Or you just appreciate it and, you know, you find it an enjoyable film like Lee did. It's safe to say that I think that everyone will find something in this film. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, what have you seen in the review world? And I know one film you've seen that I really want to see. 
I'm going to start with Netflix, and I'm going to oh. start with their latest action heist movie. Do you have called to. Lift? I, I managed to talk <laughs> myself out of watching this, and it sounds like I'm putting money on. I did myself a favour. This job, I don't know if it's possible, but if there's a way to do it, we find it. We need to intercept half a billion dollars, but we're not taking the gold. We're taking the plane, the whole plane. It's kind of hard to take half a plane. Nice. Welcome to the team. They really love you. I mean, what's not the love? You are a thief, a con man, a professional liar. Agree to disagree. This is it. I show them what true artistry looks like. Go. No. If it was in a movie, people would be like, ah! Oh my God. Ready? Here we go. Three, two, one, lift. From director F. Gary Gray comes Lift, a film which from the start pushes the suspension of disbelief by having Kevin Hart playing Cyrus, a mastermind thief whose crew are doing some kind of art world heist. Once you get over that and pass the attempt to be all down with the times by having the opening heist have something to do with NFTs, and it's worth noting that the film is immediately dated by this aspect given the recent downturn of NFT value, the main plot kicks in. Cyrus and his team are caught by Interpol agent Abby, played by Gugu Mabartha Raw, and offered a deal. And if they help hijack the transportation of gold bullion being flown from London to Zurich by terrorist mastermind Lars Jorgensen, played by Jean Reno, as payments to a hacking group Leviathan, their charges will be dropped. From that point on, this essentially becomes Ocean 747, as the crew prepare for a mid-flight heist, putting together a slick plan, with scenes of testing on equipment they design and plotting out the heist, before moving on to the actual heist itself, and it sticks strictly to formula. Anyone versed in even a handful of heist movies will be expecting the double plays and the latter act flips and twists that come, even if they are somewhat preposterous to accept as being planned all along. But as a comedy heist film, it does kind of work. It's a fun cast that keep the energy flowing. Billy Magnuson as Magnus the Safecracker is particularly entertaining throughout. Vincent D'Onofrio playing Denton has a few good moments, but he feels seriously underused in this film. And his character's presence, when you think about it, isn't actually required at all. The action moments are fun, albeit a tad ridiculous at times but they managed to entertain enough thanks to Gray's direction. But what lets this film down is that very thing that I mentioned at the head of the review, Kevin Hart. He's woefully miscast here. He's given a role that doesn't really call for his trademark underdog humour, and he struggles to convince as any kind of genius mastermind. Certainly no Clooney. He lacks the presence and cool that would let you accept that his crew looked to him and would follow him into certain danger. It's passably entertaining, with a slickness yet generic feel that Netflix action films all seem to have. The bright side, however, is that unlike most of their output, this one actually feels better paced and doesn't outstay its welcome. Worth a watch, but instantly dismissible at the end. Okay, so your next film is a film that I really want to see, and I'm hoping you're going to tell me you liked it. So that'll be Poor Things, then? It would be Poor Things, yeah. I am finding being alive fascinating. Do you want to see what the world is really like? Yes. Better. What? Why I keep it in my mouth if it is revolting? We must experience everything, Bella. Not just the good, 
the degradation horror. This makes us whole. I must go punch that baby. Poor things. This sci-fi fantasy dark comedy from director Yorgos Lanthimos has pretty much confirmed one thing for me. I just don't get Lanthimos's films. Everything about this film should appeal to me. From the twisted comical play on Frankenstein tropes, to the Victorian steampunk-esque setting and design, to the Gilliam-esque chaos that's on display. However, I just found myself nonplussed by the whole thing at the end of what was a pretty laborious 142 minutes, much in the same way I felt with every one of Lanthimos's films to date. The story follows the life of Bella Baxter, a reanimated corpse used as an experiment in which a baby's brain was transplanted into it. Those who encounter Bella cannot help but find some charm in the childlike manner that the visibly adult character has, and so begins some sweeping adventures when a lawyer, Duncan Wedderburn, whisks her away to show her the world. Through her journey, she discovers the adult world around her, and after initially being led and controlled by the men in her life, she soon finds her own freedom, both socially and sexually. All the while, her creator, Dr. Goodwin Baxter, and his assistant who planned to marry Bella, Max McCandles, strive to locate her and bring her home to safety. The cast are all great. Emma Stone genuinely inhabiting the body of an adult with childlike mannerisms to utter perfection, stumbling in the early parts of the film, but gradually becoming less awkward, albeit with some remnants of a child's gait and walk as the film progresses on. Mark Ruffalo is on perfect comical form, and I admit to find myself chuckling frequently at some of his lines and actions. Willem Dafoe as Dr. Baxter is buried under prosthetics, but still recognisable as the eccentric actor that he always is, and is perfect for such a bizarre scientist role. The look of the film is stylish, with shifts from black and white to colour at various moments, and the sets and costumes capture the essence of gothic horror with a touch of Gilliam spread about. But for me, it just felt messy overall. It's overdone, it's overindulgent, and overly stylized at times. In particular, Lanthimos's insistence of using the fisheye lens grates so much on me, and it literally kept breaking me away from any chance the film had to draw me in. Fisheye lenses irk me almost as much as obvious drone shots do in films, and when used in abundance like in here, it just sets my teeth on edge. The fisheye lens was also one of the things that killed other Lanthimos films, like The Favourite for me. But it isn't just the use of that lens that fails to work here. It's Lanthimos's quirkiness approach to telling stories that I just don't truck with. If you were to order a June and Caro collection from Temu, this would be the film that you'd get sent in response. A bargain bin facsimile attempting to capture the style of films such as City of Lost Children and Delicatessen, but missing the mark clearly. But hey, I know I'm a pretty lone voice on this one, much like I was with The Lobster, Dogtooth, Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Favourite, and I'm pretty sure that fans of the director will absolutely love this. And that's fine. I'm not going to dissuade anyone from seeing this film one bit. However, if you're like me and you haven't really dug any of Lanthimos's earlier films, then this is pretty much extreme Lanthimos, and it's not going to change your opinion. You will love it. Oh, I yes. guarantee you will love it. But I, I, I have to accept that I am not the audience for Lanthimos. We don't have to agree. It's as simple as that. Yeah. That's what makes us, that's what makes us work. And your final film is a Sky original at some point. Yes, at some point it'll be coming to Sky, but in the meantime, get to the cinemas and watch Jason Statham in The Beekeeper. Now, this is directed by David Ayer. And, and it seems to me since after Suicide Squad, and I might be wrong on this, has he had a big screen release? 
I don't think he has. Because Bright went straight to Netflix and then it gets a bit murky. I know this got a, it has got a cinema release, but yeah. the fact that it's going out as a Sky original, is that going to damn it, I ask you? Because I know your love for Sky originals. <laughs> Repeat after me. I will never steal from the weak and the vulnerable again. There's going to be a fire. Okay, thanks. This is a beekeeper. A special program outside the chain of command. When the system is corrupt, I correct it. Stolen millions from people who've worked hard all their lives. We have laws for these things. Until they fail, then you have me. The beekeeper. Jason Statham plays Adam Clay, a beekeeper, literally, who rents a garage from a school teacher named Eloise Parker. And in there, he keeps his bees and makes honey. However, when Eloise falls for a fishing scam and is robbed of millions of charity money, she takes her own life in the devastation that hits her. Clay is initially suspected as killing her, but when the case falls apart, he's then free to seek violent retribution on those responsible for the scam. This, it's absolute nonsense. With some of the worst dialogue exchanges, plot contrivances and pulp archetype characters throughout that I've ever seen on film. But I'd be lying if I didn't say it was quite a blast to watch. Because let's be honest, we don't go to watch a Jason Statham film for the dialogue and for the plot. We go to watch it for one thing. Dialogue wise, get ready for Statham grunting sentences with almost flat disdain for the very words that he's uttering alongside every variation of puns on bees that you can think of. In addition, get ready for all everyone else having hushed whispers, speaking of beekeepers, which feel like they were ripped from the John Wick films and just given different words of descriptions, clearly trying to make the beekeeper a substitute for the Baba Yaga. Get ready for Jeremy Irons chewing up scenery anytime that he can get his hands on it, and Josh Hutcherson jovially dancing around as the youthful, spoiled little rich kid behind the scammers. But most of all, just get ready for Jason Statham doing what he does best, kicking butt and causing mayhem. In the capable hands of David Ayer, the action packs a punch and more than compensates for the fact that this is a film that can't quite decide if it's supposed to be hilariously over the top or deeply serious. The tone is all over the place, but it does run at a snappily paced 105 minutes and it never really lets up, so it pretty much delivers on the thrills. I'd rank this generic nonsense alongside films like The Transporter. And let's be honest, you don't go into the Statham films expecting anything but dumb fun. Leave your brain at the door. Enjoy the popcorn on this one. So the buzz on this one isn't <laughs> as bad as we expected. <laughs> You're waiting for that stink. I was. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, let's quickly, before we move on, mention Echo. So Marvel has launched its Spotlight, which is basically a new collection of projects that, according to Marvel, require no real prior knowledge of the MCU and can be sort of enjoyed without watching countless other shows to see how they tie in. Uh, this kind of had some bad rep, people saying before it came out that it was it was terrible. We know that it was initially going to be going to be eight episodes. They cut it down to five. So it, it comes with some baggage. Now, I think with the first episode, I've, which I've only seen, while the episode does a lot of heavy lifting, I think the reintroduction of, of Maya, played by Alika Cox, and reintroducing the Kingpin, who we last saw both of them in Hawkeye, I, I, I thought it was, a, it was a pretty good 
good start. It, it includes scenes from Hawkeye. It starts like almost like a bit of a clip show to get viewers up to speed on Maya and the story so far, given those who missed it. We got to see the character. And I think what you and I really liked about it was the uh, uh, Vincent D'Onferio again playing the Kingpin, a role that he mm. brings some quiet menace to. And it now ties in the Netflix shows into the MCU. I've seen the whole series. Uh, I won't talk about plot points, etc. But I'll echo what Lee said. Is that... Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> but um, that it feels something fresh. It feels like a, a it feels like a, a calling card for where they're going to go with uh, this street level stuff that they've got from Netflix. And it's great to see D'Onofrio back as the kingpin because he owns that role with a subdued, subtle menace. He's not. I mean, when he when he lets his rage out, as we've seen in the past. He's a fierce machine, but a lot of the time it's just in his very polite exchanges. And that's the that's the kingpin for me from the comics. Yeah. That a lot of the time he just talks and he intimidates just by talking purposefully, but peacefully with people. Needs to say that Alika Cox in the lead role is absolutely magnificent. She is the true star of this, as she yeah. should be. It's her show. We've had it up other times before with um, some Marvel properties where the lead character isn't really the one in the spotlight for most of it, but she's in the spotlight throughout. And you get some backdrop of like the um, Indian reservation upbringing that uh, the character had. You get a whole in-depth spirituality aspect of it over the run of the series. And you get that street-level violence. And the violence is bloody and brutal. It warrants the 16 plus rating that it's got on Disney plus, because when it goes brutal in some of the later episodes, it goes really brutal. I think that this, it's not top tier of Marvel shows, but this is, this is up there with, it's close to Hawkeye. Yeah. And I, I loved Hawkeye, you know, those who already have made up their mind because people have made up their mind. Well, when I say people, some men had made up their minds yeah. that they were dead set against this character. And I, and I don't think, they're going to change their opinion, even if they watch it. But I, I thought for a first episode, and it was great to see Kingpin. And I know, sadly, I, I got the uh, uh, teaser spoiled for the end of the series. But uh, hey, it makes me more more giddy for Daredevil, who's my all-time favorite comic character. So um, while I thought he got off to a muddled start, I, I thought that by the end of episode one, certainly, there was a lot of promise for where it was going to go. What What's good to say is like, we don't know what the whole lot would have looked like if it was eight or nine episodes, but it does feel well-paced at five episodes. So whatever editing they've done, they've done it for the right reasons because it doesn't really slow down. It doesn't feel like a wasted episode. Everything feels like it's a progressive story. And it was, a, I don't binge watch, but with this, I binged it. Awesome. Andy, what's going up over the next week? Cinemas. We've got The End We Start From, which I'm quite intrigued with. That's the Jodie Comer movie. Mean Girls the Musical, which I can take or leave. Yeah, I don't I think there's a necessity leave. for it. But the film that I'm looking forward to watching the most is The Holdovers. Alexander Payne with yeah. Paul Giamatti in the lead. We love Alexander Payne. Can't wait. Now TV and Sky, No Hard Feelings lands this week. And King of Killers. Over on Netflix, The Kitchen, which is a story of fatherhood and love for the community. Every city has a kitchen. In dystopian London, the gap between the rich and poor has been stretched to its limits. Stars Daniel Kaluuya. And that's enough to get me interested because I do like his, yeah. him as an actor. Over on Amazon, Has Been Hotel, which follows Charlie, the princess of hell, 
as she pursues her seemingly impossible goal of rehabilitating demons to peacefully reduce overpopulation in her kingdom. Sounds quirky and fun. Disney Plus, I loved it. Lee, enjoyed it. Lands on Disney Plus this week, The Creator. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I thought it had, visually, I thought it was a treat. And Paramount Plus, The Woman in the Wall, lands this week. Another straight to Paramount movie, which are becoming almost as notorious as Sky Originals. <laughs> that, folks, that kind of brings us towards the end of um, our second show of the new year. And but before we go, and we always do this because, well, we can. We're going to tell you about our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed, read, seen, ate, you name it, as long as we've liked it, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing for this week is? My neat thing this week has become a bit of an addiction that is costing me money and I Ooh. need to stop. Crack. And it's not cocaine. Oh. <laughs> it's a chocolate bar, Tony's Chocolate Only. Now, I don't okay. know if you've heard of the Tony's Chocolate Only brand. I've not, no. You can get them in most of major supermarkets in the UK. And Tony's is a brand that came about from, there was a documentary put together by someone researching the chocolate trade and looking at the inequalities and how poorly they pay the actual people who are harvesting the cocoa beans. The person who made that documentary then wanted to make a change and so created the brand of Tony's Chocoloni. And it costs more than your normal chocolate bar, but it's ethically sourced and they make sure that people are getting paid fair wages all the way along the chain. Not only that, but it's a beautiful chocolate as well. Oh, the salted caramel one in particular is just I've not to heard of die this. for. Go and check out in your local, I mean, our local Tesco has it. I know that some Sainsbury's has like a wider range of some of the flavors. The big chunky bars, they're usually about £2.50 to £3.20 each. And it's delicious chocolate. It is proper like, you, you eat it and you just feel a taste of heaven. But to know that you're eat, you're paying more than what you would for a generic brand chocolate, but you know that the money is going to the right people because if you ever watch any of the documentaries on the chocolate trade, yeah, yeah, you will know how horrible the conditions that the workers who are harvesting the beans are living in because they are just getting fleeced. They're getting paid a pittance. Tony's Chocoloni is trying to change the world uh, in the way that we consume and think about the manufacture of chocolate. And for me, that's not only a neat thing to eat, but a neat thing to know that a new corporate entity is doing the right thing. Well, I'm going to go somewhere completely left of centre. I have become addicted to, no, not chocolate, to a <laughs> Vertigo series. Vertigo were the adult line of DC Comics and uh, usually create around such notable titles as Hellblazer, Preacher, and now for me, uh, a series called Scout which had a 60-issue run and is a crime Western comic book written by the great Jason Aron, whose work I've talked about before. His run on Thor was the inspiration for Thor, Love and Thunder, but read the books rather than see the film. And, and it is a fantastic, fantastic and gritty and very adult uh, crime series. The series is basically, after an absence of 15 years, Dashiell, Bad Horse returns to the reservation and he's promptly arrested. Uh, Taken to see Lincoln Red Crow, president of the Ogola Tribal Council, and he's made sheriff of the tribal police. However, it turns out that Dashiell Bad Horse is in fact an undercover FBI agent. This is brilliantly written, incredibly gritty, 
incredibly realistic, very violent, very adult with a sexual nature and keeps you guessing with every issue as well as having an insight into the life of uh, American natives living on reservations where life expectancy is very low, crime is very high, alcoholism is very high. Most reservations are like third world countries with incredible poverty. And as a backdrop for this cop series, Western series is, is an eye opener. Brilliantly done. Highly recommended. At the moment, I'm reading the first deluxe, which covers the first 11 issues. Uh, I cannot wait to uh, to read more. It's visceral, it's evocative, and quite simply, brilliant. I've just checked, and it's available on DC Comics Infinite as well. So uh, those of us who've got an app uh, subscription, like myself, I have now just added that into my reading list. You, you should. Highly recommend it. Um, that, folks, that's us done for this week. We'll be back again with another film file next week. Hopefully you and I will get to meet up some point in the new year. I've not seen you since before Christmas. Hopefully before next Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll try and put it in a day. We'll try and get to uh, catch something we can see together. Maybe this week. Don't know. It's, uh, it's all down to scheduling and what films are out. Um, but we'll, we'll, we must have at least one experience in the next month where we're both watching a film. We'll pick something that you hate and I love. (laughs) (laughs) Or vice versa. Makes for interesting. Makes for interesting listening. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Spread the word. And when you least expect it, nature has a cunning way of finding our weakest spot.